Welcome to the 13th in our series of Urban Transport Next conversations with an online audience on the topics that will help determine the future of urban transport. So whether you are spending your lunchtime with us listening live or whether you are listening to the podcast later or watching the playback on YouTube, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jonathan Bray, the Director of the Urban Transport Group, the organisation that's hosting these events. For those of you who don't know us, we bring together the public sector transport authorities for the largest urban areas, Transport for London, Transport for Greater Manchester, Transport for West Midlands, and all the other major metro areas as well, serving over 20 million people. As well as being a body that thinks ahead about what's next for urban transport, our members can implement that thinking on the ground and can learn collectively, and we do learn collectively from these events. So I'm really pleased that um, we've got um, a good attendance for this event and we're going to explore where now on the accessibility of our transport systems, how we got here and where we should be heading. And we couldn't have a better guest and interviewer for this topic than we have. Our guest is Alan Benson, leading disability campaigner, featured on the Shore Trust's Disability Power 100 list of the most influential disabled people for three years. He also sits on the board of Transport for All, London Travel Watch, RUILS, and co-chairs the DFT's Inclusive Transport Stakeholder Group. He was awarded an MBE for services to public transport this year, and he's a regular tweeter. We hope the audience is going to be tweeting as well about the event as we go. Um, Alan will be interviewed by Dr. Hannah Barham-Brown, who is a GP trainee in Yorkshire, Governor of the Motability Foundation, Council Member of the British Medical Association, and Deputy Leader of the Women's Equality Party, with the portfolio for Making Change Happen. Alongside her clinical and political work, she travels the UK giving talks about diversity and disability in venues from the House of Lords to international publishing companies. She is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts and works to support disabled people in politics, employment, travel, health and education. And you can also take part in this conversation in three ways. Firstly, by putting questions, keeping them short and sharp by the Zoom questions box. You can also vote for your favourite. And we'll be picking these up in the final section of the conversation. You can also use the comments channel of the Zoom call and you can join in via Twitter using the hashtag UTGnext. That's hashtag UTGnext. And with that, I'll hand over to Hannah. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jonathan. And thank you, everyone, for attending. It's lovely to at least see a little number of people in a participant box somewhere. I can't see your faces, but I'm assured that you're here. And so when um, I was asked if I'd like to interview Mr. Benson over here, it was with um, probably the fastest email I've ever replied to, I'll be honest, because, um, yeah, Alan's been a very good friend and mentor of mine for many, many years. So I thought I'd start off today with a few statistics um, just to try and get us in the picture a little bit because I'm a medic and I like numbers. Um, so to put it in context, disability. In 2021, there were 4.1 million disabled people in the UK. That's gone up 18.5% in the last seven years. And that's out of an overall population of 67.1 million. So it's around 21% of the population has a disability in the UK. Um, the purple pound, which is the economic power of disabled people and their families, equates to 274 billion pounds per year. And globally, businesses lose 200, 2 billion pounds per month 
by not embracing the purple pound and disabled people and their spending power. If we're looking at that in terms of the UK specifically, when we look at transport providers, we are purple.org.uk estimates that transport providers lost £42 million in 2021 through poor accessibility. So hopefully that's reminded you all why we're here and why this topic is so important. And now I'm going to pass straight over to the glorious Alan. Hello, my love. Hello, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. I get to chat to you for an hour. Um, please, everyone, do start popping questions in the Q&A for me and Alan. Um, you can upvote them and do all of that fancy stuff, and I'll keep an eye on them and keep reminding you to do that through the event. So, Alan, obviously, we've been mates for quite a few years now. How did you get where you are now and all of the MBEs and the clever, fancy stuff we just heard about? How did you get there? So I'm not in I don't feel like I really know how I got here. It's all sort of happened to me rather than been something that I planned. Um, I mean, I guess what you're asking for really is my origin story. And lots of disabled people are like superheroes. <laughs> don't call us inspirational. We're not generally not inspirational, but a lot of us do have moments in time, events that turned us into, into who we are and what we do. Um, I grew up uh, going to a mainstream school at a time when disabled kids did not go to mainstream schools. Um, and that taught me uh, a couple of things. Um, Firstly, it taught me that I was entitled to achieve. There was nothing that, there was no reason why I couldn't get to do the things that, that everybody else got to do. And that's a really important lesson. Um, and the other thing that it taught me was it was bloody hard to do that. There was lots put in my way that the other kids didn't have in their way. Um, so I left school and then went on and uh, started working for a living and all the other things that all the other kids were doing. Um, but things just... I kept facing barriers. So, I mean, for example, I'll give you one very specific example that sticks in my mind. And I know both you and I have issues with trains. <laughs> and we, we have said that we're not going to focus on trains, but they are going to crop up, I'm sure. Um, but there was one particular incident where I got to the end of a train journey. And I've always been a wheelchair user. I've not mentioned that. Not mentioned that yet. So I need a ramp to get off the train. The ramp didn't turn up. The train emptied. The driver took the train to the sidings and turned everything off. So I'm sitting in a dark train in the sidings, stuck. Um, Fortunately, 
I managed to attract his attention as he was getting off. And rather embarrassingly, he then arranged to go back to the station and get me off. Um, but it's those sorts of those sorts of incidents that always left me deeply frustrated. But they were part of my my daily experience. Um, so that that's kind of where I where I got to the point um, where I moved to London to follow a job. And three things happened. Um, first of all, I was commuting every day. So I started using Twitter. And as you know, Hannah, Twitter is um, deeply addictive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm tweeting about my daily experience. And again, I got left on a platform. So I couldn't go on a train. I missed the train because the guard wasn't paying attention. And I tweeted about it, which generated some, um, some comment publicly. And the third thing that happened was that it was around, we were preparing for the Olympics. Mm-hmm. So access the Paralympics, and they say that, that the Olympics has dramatically changed access in the UK. It's made a difference, but it's not dramatic. But what there was around then was a lot of publicity around access failures. And as a result of this tweet uh, conversation, I then got involved with a bunch of local activists in London, and they taught me about this thing that I'd not heard of before. And that's the elephant in the room. And it's the social model of disability. So I'd grown up understanding that it was my fault that I kept getting stuck, that I couldn't do things. But as you know, the social model says, no, I'm not the problem. It's the environment that I'm in. It's the society that I'm in. Stairs aren't my problem. Sorry, wheelchair isn't my problem. Stairs are the problem. They prevent me getting access. So that radically changed how I perceived both myself and the world around me. I came to realize that disabled is not a naughty word. It's not a negative thing. It's not something that I am. Disabled is something that is done to me. Yeah. And I think that's your experience too. Most most definitely. And I mean, one of the reasons I was so pleased about doing this event is because we've both come, we've both had quite different origin stories if you like so 
you know, you've, as you say, have been a wheelchair since, wheelchair user since birth, pretty much. Um, I got a wheelchair when I was 27, living in London, and became disabled as a medical student. Um, and actually, that was the time when, you know, I'd grown up with a mum who was a wheelchair user and never really thought about it. Like, we just always made it work somehow. Um, but it was when I suddenly was then trying to commute in London on a in a wheelchair, kind of going, I can't get anywhere I keep getting left on trains all this stuff is happening and I was already on Twitter and that's how we met is um you know I'd be sitting there going help Twitter I'm stuck on another train what do I do or this has been cancelled how do I do and it was you that was kind of like we got this kid um and you were the one that kind of really opened my eyes to disability activism and the kind of transport sphere specifically and then he gave me my first ever speaking gig and, you know, I haven't stopped since, so... That was a mistake. That was a mistake. <laughs> I blame you for a lot. The world blames Alan Benson for a lot. Um, but I think it is really interesting how so many of us have had to come together and support each other in the face of, as you say, a transport system that is often designed without us in mind, um, where we are very much an afterthought. And yes, that's because parts of it are hundreds of years old and they weren't thinking about us then. But, you know, we're still designing, we're still innovating. People are here today because of that innovation and that design work. And we need to be having these conversations now. And that's so important because I think when you look at the social model of disability, it it isn't perfect. It isn't perfect. But for so many of us, it has been the way that we process who we are in a world that often feels like it hates us. And I would urge people who um, are attending who don't have disabilities to have a look in the chat right now, because there are people commenting and sharing their experiences as disabled people, which is, you know, fantastic. And please keep doing that. But do keep putting questions in the Q&A as well. I'm going to try and get to them about quarter to ten to. Um, so, Alan, obviously, you know, you've done huge amounts of campaigning work, as we've heard. But I'm quite curious because you've been in this game a little bit longer than me. I'm not saying you're old, um, but you've been in this game a bit, a bit longer than me. What do you think? You've mentioned the kind of 2012 Olympics and how that did make some change. What do you think the journey has been like? Journey, see what I did there, has been like in terms of accessibility over the time that you've been talking about it and campaigning about it. Have you seen the improvements that, you were hoping for, or have we still got a very, very long way to go? I think it's really interesting. The thing that, the first thing that people talk about, the first thing that people recognise as a transformational change was the DDA, the Disability mm -hmm. Discrimination Act in 1995. Yeah. That entirely passed me by as a disabled person. Um, and I, I know you've seen this too. It's assumed by so many people that that piece of legislation and the Equality Act that followed it have solved the problems. And it just hasn't done. It's given us some expectations it sets out what should be there, but it doesn't actually give us 
with very many teeth or very much power to achieve those things. There's no staple backing of that. So if I want to take, if I want to use that legislation, and it's something that I do periodically, um, it's something that I've got to do at my own risk and my own cost. So that puts a lot of disabled people off. I think it's interesting what you're saying about the, the comments in the chat. I'm watching those go through too. And all of them that have come through so far, problems with access to trains, problems with access to taxis, step-free access, public space access, they are so common. They're the stories that we hear so, so often. I mean, one of the ironic things is you mentioned, um, I'm going to collapse my MBE in two weeks. I'm incredibly excited. Um, so I decided that I ought to do a, a recce. And this is something that you and I have to do all the time. We can't just turn up places. We have to go and look beforehand. And Windsor is one of the most inaccessible places I've ever seen. There's not a drop curb in the place. All of the pavements are incredibly old, uneven slate. There are cobbles everywhere. So the irony that I'm going to collect an award for making the world more accessible in an urban environment that is deeply inaccessible to me. I'm going to have to walk to Windsor Castle or wheel to the castle on the road, yes. fighting over the traffic. And that's really cold. So there's still a long way to go, but we need to mention the thing that's been in the news this week is Crossrail, mm -hmm. the Elizabeth Line. And that is a transformational, not only for London, but in the standards that it sets for building accessible environments. And you have to remember that originally, it wasn't going to be step-free at all stations. It was the fight of disabled people. And I'm delighted to say that, I'm very proud to say, um, can, uh, Transport for All, the charity that I chair, is responsible for making sure that that has funding. It's not perfect but it is so much better it sets new standards. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, our railways are 100 years old. So much of our infrastructure is 100 years old or more. We need to remember today that what we're building, what we're setting out, isn't going to last five or 10 years most of the time. It's going to last 20, 30, 50, 100 years. The station nearest to me um, has just been granted planning permission for step-free access. 
which is great news, but the bridge that they're building over, the pedestrian bridge, doesn't have a roof. Today, that's mildly inconvenient and a bit, a bit, a bit wet. But if we start looking at climate change, where are we going to be in 50 years, 100 years? You're going to get many more downpours. You're going to get much more heat. That, that, that missing roof is going to matter in years to come. So we need to start thinking much more longer term. Yeah. Um, I completely agree. I think something that really stood out to me recently, so I've been down to London for politics pretty much over half of the last two months I've spent in London, which given I live in Yorkshire is a lot. Um, and my first journey down, I tried to do it on the train because deep down, I'm, I'm a train spotter's kid, right? I was brought up on Thomas the Tank Engine. I want to love trains. I never planned on my life becoming the girl who gets stuck on trains. And yet if you Google me, that's most of the media stories is woman gets stuck on train. Um, but I went down and it was just a catalogue of errors. You know, the train, the tube, the buses, everything that could have gone wrong during that trip did. And I ended up driving the rest of the time. Like I was, I'm now an absolute pro when it comes to service stations of the M1. And I'm aware I'm incredibly privileged as a disabled person to have that option because it's not a, an option that everyone has. But I think one of the things that really stood out to me was I got to one tube platform that was accessible step free and you know city mapper everyone was telling me this is accessible but the only way i could find was i got out of the train and it was during rush hour i was trying to find the lift to get to my next connection and the only sign was at kind of my sitting eye level yes and it was one of the old bright pink ones from the 2012 olympics which of course when the platform is full is completely obscured my bodies. And so I ended up in rush hour having to try and wheel myself up and down this tube station around all the people trying not to throw myself or anyone else on the line just to work out how to get out. And it wasn't that the station itself was inaccessible as people would conceive it. They sit, they go, look, there's a lift. You can get off the train. There's flat access. What more do you want? I want to know how to do that. I want the signage that's visible at a range of different heights and the information there. So I'm not relying on people moving and rolling up and down a platform. And it's those, I think so often I've found that it's the little things because yes, you know, lifts, flat access ramps, all of that big stuff is really important, but actually it's so kind of multifaceted, the challenges that we face. And so much of it, it feels like we don't, um, we don't get brought in at an early enough stage to make those changes. And it's it comes down, the pressure is always on us as the oppressed, and I'm choosing that word, as the kind of oppressed minority who use these things, it's the pressure is put on us to fix it and to yell and to be listened to and to take things to court if necessary and to put out TikTok videos that get 20,000 views before people will sit down and engage with us. And I think that's why the work that you do with Transport for All and other organizations is so important because it gives us that voice and it gives us that kind of campaigning welly that as disabled people, we so often struggle to get 
if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that, that's, that makes complete sense. I mean, no, for me, I think the issue is that we've got all of these professionals, and, and many of them, I believe, are, are watching today whose job it is to make the environment accessible. Mm-hmm. And they've done the, the years of training, they've got their professional qualifications, and they've got a level of experience. But there is a difference between knowing what the regulations say and knowing why the regulations are there. Um, so one of my classic examples is that I, when I moved to London, I bought a flat um, that was brand new and designed for me in my wheelchair. And the architect and builder had built a wet room um, which met all of the specifications. And there were things like the shower seat, so the seat that you sit on to shower was on the opposite wall to the shower. It said there needed to be a shower seat in there, so they put one there without understanding why it was there. They also, the regulations say how far the toilet needs to be from the wall so that you can get equipment down the side and they let that standard. The standard also says there needs to be a grab handle on the wall and they've met that standard. What they've not done is thought that the grab handle cuts that gap. So you can't now get the equipment. So it's this thing about knowing why things are there. And the solution to that is, as you say, involve disabled people from the very earliest stages. Because it's much easier and cheaper to change things on plan than it is when they're built or during the building process. I mean, I think... This beautifully illustrates to me how the transport discussion in disability is never just about transport, is it? So if you look at um, Lord Shinquin, Kevin Shinquin did a fantastic report about three years ago called Able to Excel, which was all about getting disabled people onto board and CEO level organisations. And I contributed to that report at the time. And he made loads of findings and loads of ways that we could get disabled people both into the workplace and into senior levels. And things like transport and housing were actually really key to that. Because he's like, if somebody can't physically get to the office, you need to come up with a plan. You need to, you know, have alternatives. And there are all of these barriers that we face at every single stage of our lives. And a lot of the time, the disabled, disabled people have that knowledge, have that experience, often have those qualifications or would really like to get them. And we're not empowering them. We're not working with them. You know, I often go and talk to like big international companies about disability in the workplace. And so like, if you don't have disabled people on your board, then you are missing out on a huge amount of knowledge and experience. And you're literally sometimes reinventing the wheel 
And then having to take it to somebody and go, right, does this make sense? Or worse, wait for them to complain. Whereas actually from an economic basis, it makes sense to bring us into the workforce and we need transport systems and housing and all this stuff in order to do that. Um, so I think there's there's so many ways that we can tackle transport planning for disabled people. Um, and I really want to see people starting to think creatively about how we do that. That's why transport pushes more buttons. I'm not, unlike your dad, who is a geek, a, a railway geek of epic proportions, I'm not, transport isn't something that I go on. It wasn't something I do for the sake of it. I've got to say, I've got a bit addicted now. <laughs> but the, the journey is not the point. It's the purpose of the journey. It's the destination. You know, it doesn't matter how so much I get from A to B, just that I can. And, and I, one, of the, one of the things that I find interesting about you and me, I moved to London and have been attracted to London by what I consider having lived all over the country. And immensely good public transport network, be that taxis, buses, trains, all of those things that I get on with. You have moved out of London for exactly the same reason. Because you, your transport for you in London was too painful. Yeah. Too much like hard work. I think, I mean, it's true. Like, I... There were a variety of reasons why I left, but transport was a big one. I, you know, the, the kind of work I do, um, because, you know, I'm a doctor, one of the big challenges I had when I first started, I was living in South London, working in Kingston in the DGH there for the first year. And I was having, I didn't have a car. I'd just qualified as a doctor. I didn't have the money for a car. Um, and the thing I discovered was that they wouldn't really cope with the turn up and go system. So, you know, I couldn't just turn up on the platform and expect that they would get me on a train. I'd often get a lot of pushback of why didn't you book? Have you booked? Um, and actually I couldn't because my job does not finish at a set time. I can't turn around to that patient that's having a massive heart attack and go, oh, I'm really sorry. If I don't leave now, then I'm going to miss my train home and I won't be able to leave at all. Like you can't do that as a doctor. And I think for me, it just completely rammed home this attitude that I've seen in so many elements of my work of you can't do that because you're disabled you can't be a doctor because you're in a wheelchair or but you must be the last one to the crash call because you're in a wheelchair I'm sure you can't do surgery because I can do all of those things and often I get there faster than anyone else because I used to do triathlons in my wheelchair I'm pretty strong but it really just kind of really affected my mental health after a while because it was another barrier to doing the thing I loved that I had no power over. And it was just reinforcing all these negative messages that I was already experiencing. Um, whereas now I live in my very large sizable car. I don't want to, I want to be green, um, but I just don't have that option. And so I'm so like, I'd far rather live up here where it's a lot cheaper and I don't have to sell a kidney to get housing um, than live down in London and constantly be fighting the system just to live my life as all my colleagues do. Um, 
I'm noting that there are two questions in the Q&A so far, and I want to start asking them in about five minutes. So please do bump them across, bump any questions into the Q&A and start upvoting and stuff, because otherwise I'll just be grilling Alan, um, which... Oh, we can do this all day. Oh, we can. I feel like that teacher at school, it's not my time you're wasting. Um, but, so, I, mean, it's, I have noticed, I've got the tracking, and there was one comment that's gone through, and, and I think it's really a really valid, uh, valid question. Um, and it's how do the planners, how do the decision makers make a difference? How do they... Um, how do they get, and I'm just scrolling back, uh, what are the best practices for bringing disabled people into the early stages of design? And I think that's a really key question. I think there's, there's two things that, that I'd like the, the audience here to take away today. One of which is asking themselves, what can I do that will make a, a change in the work that I'm doing on a daily basis? And, and I think the other thing that's relevant is, as you mentioned, we are faced with a climate crisis. We are faced with a health crisis, an active travel an agenda. We're faced with, um, certainly in London, there's the, uh, the Vision Zero, so no road accidents, no accidents on public transport. All of these things are going to need the involvement of disabled people to achieve. We want to be green. We want to be healthy. But how do you embed disabled people in that process? And um, one of my greatest, one of my proudest achievements was a scheme that we developed with TFL. Um, there are lots of people that run disability equality disability awareness training. Firstly, I'd say is if you don't do that, and I would encourage everybody to, to do a program of that, involve disabled people. They are, they are the ones best equipped to teach those courses. It's absolutely no good putting somebody in vision-impaired classes and trying to simulate or putting somebody in a wheelchair. That's just horrendous and, and counterproductive. We need to get proper training. Um, but the thing that we did with TFL was that the training was coupled with taking senior managers, project managers, decision makers and designers out with disabled people to see what the real environments are like and what the impacts of decisions are. Um, and that then led on to some incredibly powerful 
conversations, as part of that training, and where people took ownership in their areas of work. So they took ownership of, as you said earlier, signage. They took ownership of coming up with creative solutions to, um, to, to alternatives to lifts or ramps or just putting in the right kind of lighting so that the fluorescent lighting doesn't trigger headaches or epilepsy. Now, these are things that, that are really obvious to us disabled people that experience it, but they're not obvious to, to the decision makers. Yeah. I think you're so right. And, you know, I, I similarly get a serious, it gets actually really insulting when people sit in a wheelchair, have a go for 10 minutes and think they get what it's like that yeah that's that's actually incredibly insulting please nobody do that um but i think that kind of co-production model and getting us in there and also you know asking if you're going to be working with a certain organization and you're looking you, you know getting i can't find the word but if you're getting like cvs or whatever from different companies to help you design x y and z ask the question how many disabled staff do you have on your books you know say that i'm going to prioritize choosing a company that brings disabled people in from the word go and ideally employs them in the first place. It's that kind of, you know, intricate workings of things I think is so important. I guess, so I'm going to start kind of rounding up a little bit because I want to get some questions and I know we started a bit late. Um, I mean, there are going to be some people here who are kind of like, right, what quick wins can we do? You know, what does the ideal accessible streetscape transport system look like? And you've given us some great pointers on that. But I think, you know, if everybody could take away one thing that you wanted them to change, do, not that we'll necessarily fix everything, but what would that one thing you wanted them to do be? You don't start with small questions. No, fix it, Alan. Just tell me how to fix it. (laughs) I mean, I keep banging on about about training. I always have gone on banging on about training. Um, I guess there's an attitude change, and we have talked about it a little bit. When you talk, when accessibility gets raised, people start thinking immediately of wheelchairs and step free. They start thinking of, I mean, the, the cost of putting a lift into a station is unbelievable. And it's around a million pounds per platform. So for your average station, it starts at two, three million pounds. These are enormous sums of money. But the things that can make the greatest difference are often so much cheaper. Mm -hmm. They are, as you mentioned, having the right signage in the right place at the right size. And that's really cheap to do. It's about having the right bulbs in the right place. It's a, you know, so, so lighting doesn't trigger um, headaches. But as I've said, it's about having root finding. It's about just looking around 
and not putting not putting barriers in, in place. So if you've got one of the, the current bugbears is things like um, the, the chicanes that you get to stop cyclists moving down. They're great stop cyclists. They also stop wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. You know, that, those things are, we've got better designs now. Don't rely on what we were doing 20 or 30 years ago. Keep up to date. Keep, keep the standard. Keep pushing forwards. Um, look at what is happening in your local environment. What groups are local to you? that you can partner with to help develop solutions in your local area. There was another comment that went around uh, in the chat earlier about a restaurant that's opened that has a, an accessible toilet but doesn't have a ramp to get into the building. And they've approached the council to look at getting a ramp. Total ramps aren't great. We'd much rather those decent access, but they're better than nothing. Why can't the council start a project? Certainly in Richmond, where I am, the, uh, the rules, the local charity that I work with, and the local businesses formed a partnership to buy some ramps and the businesses that need them. And the council took that project. So there are things that creatively we can do. They're not perfect. And we'd love perfect, but we're realistic. We're not going to get perfect. So let's just get what we can. I think I'm going to capture the kind of the creative ideas there, because I think this is actually a really exciting area to work in. Like, as I said, I never wanted to be a trend geek. but I ended up, you know, I've become an ambassador for the Design Council. And I'm also working with Motability because I think there are so many creative ways we can do this. There are so many potentially small projects that can make a huge difference. And if you're training the architects of tomorrow, this is exactly the kind of stuff that we should be getting them to do and getting them to think about from like, you know, university level right up. Because it really makes you think differently about the space around you. You can think, oh, my goodness, you can think intersectionally about things like, you know, I had this awful night in Leeds Station where my last train home was cancelled. I live in a small village in the middle of nowhere. And um, there was next to no lighting. They basically parked me on the bridge bit and just said, you're just going to have to wait here for an hour. And it was the night of a football match. And I was sitting there in my chair and there were so many drunken football fans, you know, coming past, trying to have a ride on my chair, wanting to sit on my lap. Like it was, I was basically being assaulted and there was nobody there to support me. There was no safe space for me to go to. And as a woman traveling at night with a disability, I was not safe. And it's nobody would ever considered, you know, about the kind of additional needs of disabled people, not just being where can we park our wheelchair, but actually, are we safe? You know, what vulnerabilities do we have in that space? So I think there's like so much exciting opportunity in this area for change that people can really get their teeth into. So, yes, fantastic. Um, We could clearly and gladly would talk all day about this. I've got loads of questions kind of coming in. 
Right. Okay. Oh, some of these are cracking. Alan, what can we do to open up active travel to disabled people? I've got a few thoughts on this, but I'm keen to know if you've got any. The first thing that I would say is there are some issues with active travel. Mm -hmm. For disabled people, sometimes their vehicle is more than just a thing to get them from A to B. It can, we often disabled people need to carry equipment with them. I mean, certainly I play wheelchair sometimes, so loaded down. For some people, there is no alternative to having their own private transport. So we need to, in any decisions that we're making around the streetscape, we need to consider those that don't have any choice. And the other thing that we need to think about that I don't think people have realised is most wheelchair accessible vehicles, you can't electrify. You can't put batteries in those vehicles because those the spaces that usually are occupied by batteries, we need for ramps and things. So we're, we, there are always going to be barriers that we need to consider. That said, and we said it earlier, we do want to be green. You know, cleaner air, quieter, safer streets are as much benefit from me, if not more so than for other, for other people. Because as I've said, pavements are often inaccessible. So I'm safer on quieter roads. So it comes down to that thing about consulting and consulting in an accessible way. So if if you're putting out tweets with graphics, put all text on them so that blind and partially sighted people can see what they're saying. If you're holding online webinars, and I think one of the things that we've learned from the pandemic is that you can make webinars much more accessible and easy to to get to than in-person events. But you need to make sure that you lay on captions, DSL, and ask people what their access needs are. And actually, the same goes for in-person events. Because not all impairments are visible. Mm -hmm. A a lot of very powerful people that I know have invisible impairments, energy impairments. So you wouldn't know to look at them that they need to sit down or they can't walk great distances. So just listen, ask questions and listen to the answers. Most definitely. I mean, I think active travel is going to be a really interesting area in the next couple of years. Obviously, as you've mentioned, you know, we've got a health crisis on. As a GP, I'm desperate to get all my patients, you know, 
active traveling as best they can um, to whatever degree possible because it's exercise as well as anything else it's increased independence and all of this really good stuff but we need to be having discussions about how we make that accessible to everyone and I think you know if I were to say get a hand bike here I mean I live in the middle of the countryside so I'm going to get mowed down by a tractor that's a serious risk but if I wanted to take it into Leeds or summit I'd have to try and work out how to get it and me on the train um with my wheelchair and whatever else where I leave my wheelchair you know all of these kind of like links that need to be made throughout my journey and that's going to be very different for somebody with a visual impairment or you know so we have to kind of think about it from a I think there's always a risk that people can see homogenous uh, disabled people as a homogenous group and it's kind of like right we got a wheelchair user in they said it's fine so it'll be fine for everyone I'm really sorry with like how many did I say we are 21% of the population we're not the same we're not all pleasant we're not all going to tell you you're wonderful on a daily basis um and we're going to disagree on things but we're also going to have differing needs and I think we are, we are both electric wheelchair users yeah and we both have very different needs oh goodness but, yeah but all, I mean there's so much opportunity in that that act of travel for hand cycles for and yeah, um, uh, tricycles, you know, three-wheeled bikes for tandems. You know, these are non-standard. You know, they're not two-wheeled bikes. They need non-standard parking. Mm-hmm. They need not to come up with those those chicanes that get in the way. We need to think more inclusively about how we design our Um, I'm not sure we're going to get to all the questions, but I am going to run a little bit over because we did start quite late and there are some fantastic stuff here. We've kind of touched upon the next one, which is whether we can share any examples of best practice of bringing disabled people in early to the design of transport schemes. But specifically, Erica is asking if there's any learning we can take from the process for the Elizabeth line, which recently launched. You know, what would you like to see we take from that for the next Elizabeth line, the Charles line. I don't know what they're going to call it. I, so I've heard Mark Wilde, who's the CEO of Crossrail, talk a couple of times over the last week or two. And he's very open that the Elizabeth line is more accessible than it was planned to be. Mark has been a great ally and a great supporter. But he's also clear that it's not perfect. And I think the thing that, and this actually comes from those standards, we need to take standards, we need to take our current norms, not as targets, but as starting points. This isn't where we need to get to, this is where we need to start from. How do we make it better um, than it currently is? Um, There's a lot of of good stuff about the Elizabeth Line. The open spaces, the the lighting, the sound levels make it much more welcoming to neurodivergent people. You know, I've got a friend you cannot use the tube. It's just sensorily 
overwhelming. But can you use the Elizabeth line? It's opened up London to her. Mm. And that, when you see that happen, makes what we do so worthwhile. Um, and there's a lot in it. If you want to find out why, why you do what you're doing as a transport planner and urban designer, go and talk to the people who benefited. Um, in terms of involving disabled people, I think the other thing to do is share your learnings, share what you as planners and as designers have achieved. So the City of London have spent two or three years now, the, the pandemic got in the way, developing an urban design methodology, a matrix that allows you to score various accessibility features in the urban landscape. And to, as we've talked about, Disabled people have different requirements, and sometimes those requirements are contradictory. Mm -hmm. So blind and partially sighted people need tactile paving, and you and me, it's incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a, 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 a compromise to be had there. So this City of London tool allows you to quantify that compromise. And now they've got that, that right, they're sharing that publicly. So I would encourage everybody to look at that and, and share the work that they're doing. And don't be afraid to be criticised. You know, if disabled people are telling you, we'll tell you when you do it right, um, but boy, will we tell you when, we, when you do it wrong. Don't take that as a... As a, as, a, as a slap down, take that as an opportunity to move back to next time. I think that's that's a fantastic note to finish on because I think sometimes it can feel like you're being incredibly critical, but I do always try and share when something goes right because I think it's important that we do celebrate that and we do highlight good practice as well. But unfortunately, there is a very, very long way to go until we can honestly say that our transport system is accessible and equitable and it's events like this and conversations like these that will hopefully be the force for change that so many of us desperately need them to be yeah, i think you're right i mean there's been so many comments in the chat and in the questions of um, so many valid comments and so many people that clearly want to make a difference it's really encouraging um, as hannah has already said we're both on twitter we're both publicly available. If you want steering in the right direction, then feel free to reach out. I'm sure both of us will be delighted. Very much so. Thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure. I will hand back over to Jonathan, who is very sweetly going to sit in there going, we're over time now. <laughs> but it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. My love. Lovely to talk to you, Hannah. Lovely to talk to you, Hannah. Well, and, and thanks. I mean, that was fantastic, wasn't it? And uh, I learned a lot. There's a lot to absorb and think about. And I know we've had quite a few colleagues from across the UCN 
uh, the Urban Transport Group network on the call. Um, so that's great. I mean, a, a few things I took from it. Um, that all the details matter. It's not just about meeting the technical requirements of regulations and legislation. And my perception of this issue for a while has been that it's been very led by legal engineering and right we've ticked that box uh, but the signage point was very striking indeed uh, both from Hannah's personal experience but how cheap some of that is to fix and also the idea that it shouldn't really be down to disabled people to scream and holler about fixing these things it just requires uh, that attention and consistent attention to detail rather than oh we've ticked that box we've, we've done the engineering bit um, a few of the things that stay with me in particular um, needing to involve disabled people at the start not when it's already been done and gone wrong um, that people should be thinking about the change that they can make in the work that they are doing as professionals and that um, we also need to embed disabled uh, people in when we're thinking about achieving the wider social goals of tackling climate change and, and vision zero and uh, healthy streets and those wider agendas and we all want to have a go on crossrail if we haven't done it already i certainly do uh, but it's good to hear that not perfect but it's setting new standards so when we have our go on crossrail we can look out for that too so um fantastic uh stuff um i hope you will uh, be able to uh, join us for the next urban transport next event uh, which will be in july date to be fixed number 14 which will be about the good life uh, the role of transport in shaping a new and sustainable era for suburbs in the meantime thanks so much to hannah and Alan, thanks to everyone who took part live and for those listening into the podcast and watching the playback on YouTube. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>